Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I'm Mike. We got Tim here. Hey. Hey, what's going on? So, uh, starving after that episode. Starving. We just recorded. Yeah, we just recorded. It was a longer recording, and we were talking with uh, a special guest who does a lot of cooking for a, well, he's more than just a cook, but he, uh, you know, he, he's on the leadership team for a uh, particular company in town, Fast Casual Place. They do some pasta stuff. You'll probably hear about him here soon, but you'll get that interview. That'll probably be three to four weeks from now that that goes live. So keep an eye out for that. But what's going on in Columbus? I don't even know. I've been very heads down on work. Wait, is there anything yeah, happening? Dude, just just working, man. Um, I just learned that the 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 house from we were talking about earlier, the house from the a Christmas story is in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. You can mm-hmm. stay there. It's like a I guess it's a shrine to the movie, and I think you can you can rent it. So that's fascinating. That's all that's going on in Columbus. I gotta right say, now. I feel like there's only two sides to a Christmas story. There's either your side who loves it, and then there's me and my side of people who think. God, it is the most boring. Yeah, it's Christmas like being, movie it's like being right or wrong. I'm I'm correct and you're wrong. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, two well, sides. Well, <laughs> debatable. So this week on the show, we've got Ryan CV joining us, and Ryan is uh, the general manager at Data Robot as well as Nexosis, and uh, we had a good time talking. Tim, I don't even know. We're, I don't think you were on this interview. I'm not sure. Did he talk about uh, selling one company and joining another one? I think I may remember that. Now I'm going to think about it. And, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I- no, yeah, 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 yeah. So Nexosis becomes a part of data robot through an acquisition. Then I think I was there. So that, yeah. That was then, very fascinating on how that process, I, I don't know if I'm alone in that. We even got into, like, we got into a little bit of AI and learning and mm-hmm. whether or not robots are going to kill us. So <laughs> always, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a big the, part of my life. Uh, have you seen any movies ever? Of course the robots kill us, but mm-hmm. Ryan's got a lot of, a uh, lot of insight. He's, he's a very technical guy and a, you know, really, really great story and, and, Looking forward to learning a little more about what he does in the future. But if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a like. Why am I saying that? That's the end of the episode. This is the end of the intro. So <laughs> enjoy this intro, episode. Enjoy this episode. We'll be right back. <laughs> this is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that, live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24 Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Uh, I'm Mike, one of your co-hosts. We got the full gang here today, Josh and Tim on the show, joining us as co-hosts. Welcome, guys. Hello. hello. How we doing, man? Good, 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 good. It's uh, Tuesday evening, and uh, our guest today is Ryan CV and Ryan is the general manager at Data Robot as well as the CEO and founder of Nexosis. Nexosis provides a machine learning API for developers and was acquired by Data Robot in 2018. Before founding Nexosis, Ryan was a founder and CEO of several other companies and he's also spent time in the cybersecurity field. 
really excited to have him on the show today to talk about the founding of Nexosis, their journey, and and how they got to where they are today. And then uh, as well, maybe even get into a little bit on AI and cybersecurity. But uh, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's exciting to uh, have you here today. One of the first things we like to do is just talk a little bit about your background, kind of how, maybe even a little bit about how you got into development and your journey as an entrepreneur. So starting all the way back as far as like, hey, when I was a kid, this kind of really stood out to me and made me want to go this path, but really, you know, as broad as you want to get. Grow up here in Columbus. Are you from Central Ohio or? Yeah. So actually I grew up in a town called Centerville, Ohio, which is about an hour and a half south of Columbus. And truthfully, as I, as I look back, my very first company, I was a middle schooler and I had just started to teach myself how to code. And, you know, this was like the days of dial up, right? So back then it was like, if you could get a marquee or scrolling text to go across a website and play video in music, that was all the rage, right? So I, I taught myself how to do that. And a buddy of mine was really into design. So we started making websites and uh, some of our earliest clientele were, were churches around the Centerville area, believe it or not. So that was kind of my first, I guess, dipping my toes into what it really meant to, to run a business. Um, that actually might have been one of my more profitable ventures as I look back. <laughs> like, so, yeah, that, that's how I got started. Um, believe it or not, when I went to college, I, uh, I didn't go for computer science. I thought I was going to become an attorney. So I did political science and sociology. And then somehow the computer gods, if you will, pulled me back in. So I was a senior at Wright State University and I was doing an internship with the Montgomery County Public Defender and they had a job opening for an IT manager. So I did the internship and then the public defender came to me and he's like, you know, I know you're really good with computers. We have this job opening. Would you be interested in, you know, applying for it and, and doing it? And this was 2008. And part of my decision making was there were these articles coming out about how you, you had a better chance of getting hired on at a law firm during the Great Depression than you did in 2008, 2009 because of the Great Recession, right? So I'm like, huh, well... This pays like a pretty decent salary. You know, here I am, a kid right out of college. Like, okay, sure. I guess I'll come back into the IT folds, if you will. And then the rest is just kind of history, right? Like that led to the next thing and the next thing. But I've just always kind of been in the broader IT field ever since. I think that's interesting because like one one common thread that I hear in a lot of people that we have on the show is like, you have an opportunity presented and you take it, Right. Like some people would have said, no, 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 I want to be a lawyer. That's like been what I wanted to do. I'm just going to stick with that. But you had an opportunity presented as this, in this IT role and you just said, hey, why not? Let's try it. Do you think that that, so when you took on that IT role, right, did the website design and the previous uh, business to that, was that really relevant or was it almost completely different focus? It was relevant. And, and so one of the things when I went off to college I think I've always just kind of been naturally gifted when it comes to anything IT. Like I could just, look, the story is when I was in the sixth grade as well, I was really into the hacking culture, like the true mm -hmm. hacking culture. 
and I did a lot of things that back then, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, you know, they're called different things today, like social engineering. And, uh, like the story is I accidentally hacked somebody that was pretty important because this kid was using, well, his son was using the computer and I was trying to mess with him. But so like, I, I've just always been naturally talented in this arena. And when I went off to school, I thought, you know, I, I'm going to try to kind of broaden my horizons. I was a pretty shy kid. I didn't like getting in front of people and talking. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, lawyers they have to get up in court and they have to argue. And I like the logic side of law. You know, that's always been super appealing to me. It's just all the logic that goes behind um, trying to articulate a certain position, right? And I'm like, all right, I'm going to brighten my horizons. And that's why I went political science and sociology. But I mean, sure, like everything plays upon itself, right? Like back in the sixth grade when I was doing websites, that absolutely kind of transitioned to when I became the IT manager for the public defender's office. So you were you were hacking people when you were in sixth grade? <laughs> Yep. Normal sixth grade so stuff. Who did, who did you hack? That was a very prominent person. I, I like. I think the statue of limitations is over, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, like, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say yes. I, I mean, of the four of us, I think you're probably the most qualified. And besides, like, and besides, like, there's what are the chances that they're listening to this podcast? Yeah, let's hope so, high. So his his dad was an FBI agent. Perfect. I love that. That's good. And, uh, that sounds like yeah, a plot of a was, movie. Was, there's wait, like, so they, but that means you, since you're asking about the statute of limitations, that means not only did you hack them, but you also were not caught doing it. <laughs> that that that's like. Yes and no. I think that the father was so embarrassed that it happened um, that they just kind of looked the other way. When I was in sixth grade, we used to buy, or that age, we used to buy universal remotes from the corner store and go down the street and change people's channels and turn their TVs off. So that was, I mean, that's basically hacking. Right. I mean, it's always the same thing. Right. I remember doing well, that. Level degree degree yeah. of difficulty is, you know, maybe one or two <laughs> apart, but hacking mixed with a peeping tom. So it's a real, <laughs> real classy form of hacking too. It was like just to piss dads off because they'd be watching something, yeah, they'd yeah. change a channel and they'd freak out. It was it was a lot of fun. You so, know, it's funny you mentioned so that. The same. that I got like all these memories are starting to flood back. Uh for my high school prank, I hacked all the computers and back then you could schedule a task, right? And it was just like Oh my God. I, I forget what software, you know, it wasn't Windows. It was whatever. But anyway, I had it scheduled. So at a certain time, all the computers went to this YouTube video. I think it was YouTube. Actually, it might have been something else back then, right? But essentially, it was a YouTube video of this like animated snake, snakes, like badger, 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 badger. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I had that play on all the computers. <laughs> <laughs> So you guys that, remember that? that? You guys know the video we're talking about? I, I thought you were going a different route, but <laughs> there's a couple other videos I remember that people are hacking in the computer room. Well, and then like, I remember that some kid, so now we're getting completely off track, but I got to talk about this because yeah. like at my high school, I remember that somebody had like put StarCraft onto all of the computers of the entire school, but you had to know like a specific, there was some type of, it was like an encrypted folder or something and you had to know how to find it. And so none of the teachers could ever get rid of it because they didn't know how to find it. But yeah. yeah, so everyone would just play StarCraft during like in the library time. But yeah, sorry. I love that. Completely, completely no, I love it. sidetracked here. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. 
Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So Ryan, you get you get into that IT role, and then where do you go from there? Yeah, so long story short, and this is probably the first indication that I needed to just kind of run my own company was I got into trouble with the with I guess the county um, because back then voice over IP was this emerging technology, and I'm like, hey, we should replace our phone system with voice over IP. So like long story short, that didn't I guess go over well. And look, I was nineteen. Well, I guess I was 20, 21, something like that, right? So I didn't really understand that replacing phone systems with voice over IP meant like job displacement. So that ended up making a lot of people very angry because they thought I was going after their job, Mm -hmm. right? Like, oh my God, you're going to get rid of the PBX system. Like, I can't learn VoIP. That would be, can't do that. So they, they ended up getting rid of me and... That was probably again like my my first inkling. Like, okay, maybe I uh, should do this not not under somebody else's supervision. But long story short, after that, I moved to Columbus and I got a job up there as a consultant. So that was that was fun because you get to go into all these different environments and do all kinds of different stuff with computers. And I was really focused on the networking aspect when I went up to Columbus. So I, I love to build networks, you know, Cisco equipment, get all the hardware out and hook them all up. And I like, I have a CCNA and CCNP and all these certs from Cisco. And like, that was super fun. And one day it dawned on me, Hey, wait a minute. Like we go out and we set up these networks, but nobody's talking about how we secure the network. Mm-hmm. And it was like that idea ball was like, well, I'm going to figure out how we should secure this when we set these up, because that's silly not to do. And that led down the cybersecurity path. And then I ended up at American Electric Power, was on their cybersecurity team. And that was, a, you know, again, looking back, it's just like, wow, all these stars kind of aligned in a way. But that's where I met Jason Montgomery, who would eventually become my co-founder at Nexosis. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at American Electric Power, you know, like I, I think one of the things has always been, if somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm going to do it anyway. Like I will find a way. I feel that. And at AEP, there were like all these really seasoned people that have been there forever. And I wanted to create an internal red team or an internal testing team. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, you're just wasting your time. Like we already tried this and it didn't get approval. So you're never going to get this done. And long story short, I got it done. Like I, I created the very first internal testing team at AEP. And uh, then they gave, then they then they put, you know, one of the people that had been there forever, uh, they put him in charge of it, and that rubbed me the wrong way. So I'm like, yep, I'm done with this place. Hmm. Um, but the point was, like, when people were sitting there telling me, like, you're never going to get this through, like, the CISO will never sign off on it. That just made me want to do it that much more, yeah. right? It was like, I'm going to do this, A, because it was the right thing to do, and B, because, like, don't tell me I can't do it. I'm going to do it despite you, right? So, right. <laughs> So you wrap up, you're wrapping up at AEP or, or you're still at the job and you meet Jason Montgomery. How yeah. do you guys figure out the problem that needs to be solved? And how do you go about discussing, you know, when, when to make the leap, how to make the leap? How does, how does everything come from, come to fruition from zero to one? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. When we were both at AEP, we started reading and looking into machine learning a little bit. And the challenge that we faced there was, you know, AEP is a massive company. And I don't think people realize how many assets they have in the field. So all those assets are generating data. And at the time, I think their their blue team or their operation team was like maybe eight people. So you have eight people who are supposed to sift through all this data and, you know, try to find indicators of compromise, which is, you know, literally looking for a needle in a haystack. And sure, you have tools that are supposed to help you. But it, it's really, really hard to always find those indic- indicators of compromise. So we're like, hey, what if we use machine learning to sift through all this data and then just kind of maybe highlight anomalies or highlight things where they need to go and investigate a little bit deeper. So that was kind of the initial spark. And then Jason left AP. He went to a startup called Vericode. And, you know, I left AP and went to HP. And we both had 20% time, right, where we could do whatever we wanted with 20% of our time. And him and I just started doing research projects together. And we would give talks at a security conference down in Kentucky, which is no longer operating, but it was called DerbyCon. And that was kind of the the initial, let's make a product that uses machine learning. And, you know, we're both doing this in 20% time. So the first challenge, which is still a huge issue today, is like, where do you get data, right? Like, no matter what problem you want to solve, you got to figure out where you're going to get the data to solve that problem if you're going to do machine learning. So we're also both gamers. And he was telling me one day that he didn't like online gaming because of cheaters. And I'm like, huh, well, you know what? I bet you we can make a machine learning system that uses Valve's APIs and we can ingest that data. And then we could basically use machine learning to figure out if somebody's cheating. So the thesis was this. When you're cheating, you're trying to give yourself an unfair advantage. And if you're doing better than a professional gamer is doing, you're probably cheating, right? Right. So that was how we went about building the model. In doing this, we actually did build it and we gave a talk on it and that was great. But the, the like aha moment, if you will, was it was really, really hard to build those models. And we were both like, hey, you know what? I bet we could automate so much of this workflow. And that was kind of the spark behind Nexosis. It was, let's make our lives easier when we're trying to build these models. And then the rest is, well, (laughs) that's how we get to Nexosis, right? And then that's like Mm -hmm. a whole other story about all these winding roads that eventually ended up to us building the company that we really wanted to build. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. So when you when you talk about models, for people out there not familiar with machine learning and, and what you guys are doing, what exactly do you mean by that? Is that just a series of algorithms that drives the software or what is that? Yeah, so so a model is trying its its underlying thing is an algorithm, right? So you might have like a regression model or like a decision tree model, um, but at the end of the day, it's trying to essentially make a prediction or do some kind of action. In our case, it was trying to uh, classify, right? So think of that as like a binary thing, one or a zero. It's trying to classify based on all the data we were feeding to it. Was this individual person cheating? 
And so that model would take into account, right? Like for using the video game example, Hey, how many times, how many, like the only thing video game I can think of is call of duty right now. So how many kills did they get? <laughs> right. Versus how many deaths they had accuracy, like any data that it had available to it. And then compare that to relative numbers and say, okay, statistically speaking, it's likely that this person was cheating or it's unlikely. Yeah. So actually that's, that's a really interesting part of it is initially you might think like, yeah, accuracy plays a big role in it. But what we actually found and what the model picked up on were these outside the game things influenced whether or not it thought somebody was cheating. Mm -hmm. And the best example of that I can give is it would look at how old your account was. You know, a brand new account that doesn't own a lot of games. That was the other thing it looked at was how many games do you own? Mm -hmm. So if you're a new account and this is the only game you own and you have this crazy high accuracy, you're probably cheating. Because if you're cheating, you're not going to use your main account. People probably have thousands of dollars sometimes invested in their main, you know, gaming account. So they make these, they're called Smurf accounts to, mm -hmm. to do it on. And uh, yeah, so the algorithm, you know, again, a human might not even think about that. But the algorithm is like, hey, you know what? There's high correlation here. And that is a big part of our decision-making process. So cheating is a pretty big thing on Call of Duty. Yeah. In Warzone. I've, I've played quite a bit of Warzone, not recently, but with some friends. And we got down the YouTube rabbit hole of watching because people can, once you get killed, you can watch the person who killed you. You play Call of Duty at all? But Josh doesn't play video games, I don't think. I, I, I like the idea of it, but then I never end up doing it. But we were, we were watching these videos because my buddy gets really mad when people cheat. You uh -huh. know, like what you're talking about? And they have this thing where the, it'll like snap to like the head of the person or you can like, and people use a, a sniper rifle as a very like common cheating one. And they'll like shoot around stuff or like through stuff and they can see heads that aren't there, mm -hmm. but people can watch them. And now they're like reporting them. So that's something I've noticed recently is if someone has like five people watching them or six people watching them, it's like very highly likely that. So do you guys use data like that to track people or is it more um, oh, yeah. less robust or more robust than that? Yeah, that, that, that was certainly part of it. It would look at the type of, of weapon they were using. And Some people are just point, blatant about it, you know, too. They'll mm -hmm. just go kill everybody until they get kicked off or whatever. Yep. Well, because they could probably just always go get a new account. Like, they're smart enough that they can go get a new account and come back pretty quickly. Well, they can ban IPs, can't they? Like, they can tell where you're playing from, or is that uh, an issue? So you can use, like, a VPN, right? All right. So this, this is <laughs> Here like we go. Now we're a getting... whole rabbit hole, yeah. but look... It's not really in Valve or Activision's best interest to ban your IP. Like, I'm pretty sure they know what's going on. And every single time they ban that account and you just buy the game again, there's another $19 or there's another 50 bucks. $64, or whatever sell it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Makes so sense. They're not going to ban. They can. They could do a hardware ID ban, which would be way harder to circumvent than, you know, an IP address change, something like that. But, mm -hmm. uh, they don't. They right. have the capability, but they don't. And then you have to think through like, oh, well, there's like a pretty big business reason why that is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. So that's kind of how Nexus has got its start. But what did it what did it grow into from there? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm trying to think maybe the best way to tell the story. Nexosis was kind of our, our first true startup. And that brings a lot of challenges, I think, when... You know, this was 2014, 2015 is when we officially incorporated, but obviously we did a lot of work before then. And we knew nothing really about like what a startup even was. 
you know, we're like, let's just make a company. We didn't even call it a startup. We're like, let's just make a company. And I, I forget who it was, but somebody was like, oh yeah, there's this thing called Tech Columbus. You should go talk to them about your idea. And if I'm being honest, I think that in the early days, we got a lot of bad advice from people who portrayed themselves as being experts. And that would be something that I would just, I, I will precious till the day I die. Be very, very careful of whose advice you listen to. And yeah, just, just looking back, you know, there were so many mistakes, which were fundamentally all back to who we were getting advice from that we made as Nexosis that really hurt the company throughout its entire life cycle, really hurt the company. And so like the early days, we had this cool idea, we thought, and we were just like inundated with, you guys got to think about revenue. You you know, you got to figure out like how you're going to start making money. And we took that advice to heart, to our detriment for like the first two years, I think. And we ended up working closely with these people from Wendy's, the Wendy's Corporation. Mm -hmm. And they like really started to dictate what we were building more so than what we wanted to build, if that makes sense. Right. So we were starting to chase money because these were real contracts and they were meaningful amounts of money. But like it wasn't something we were passionate about. Right. So the very first iteration of Nexosis was all about demand forecasting. And we were doing like marketing impact analysis for these Wendy's franchise owners on things like, is the four for four driving more people to our store? Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, okay, that sounds cool. But that's, look, that's not what Jason and I were like, like, you know, dreaming about building, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> hey guys, let's, let's build this impact analysis tool for uh, Wendy's franchisees. And look, if I'm being honest, that did lead to revenue. And then that led us to get into Techstars. And I think when we left Columbus to do the Techstars program, that's that's kind of when everything changed. So we're, we're now in a new city and we were in Minneapolis. They have a pretty robust ecosystem for startups, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would have never thought that until I, you know, spent three months there. And we were working hand in hand with Target, but we we're still on this demand forecasting thing, right? Like that was this whole thing. Like we did time series machine learning and nobody else is really doing time series machine learning. And obviously the big, well, one of the big use cases is demand forecasting and demand forecasting is this incredibly complicated thing that costs, you know, Fortune 500 companies like Walmart and Target. I think like billions of dollars a year, right? Like right. if you get that wrong, it's a big problem. So we were there and we started getting these amazing mentors and, and the people who really, I think had the biggest impact positively for the company were people who encouraged Jason and I to do what we were really passionate about doing. And like, that's pretty scary, right? Like we as a company basically said, you know what, we're going to nuke, well, we're going to just get rid of this product, this demand forecasting focus, and we're going to get back to our roots, which was really about building a developer tool so that software developers could easily incorporate machine learning into their applications. Mm-hmm. And, and like that's what really excited us. Well, something, something that you said there, Ryan, actually 
resonates with an interview we had recently called when, when Mark Kwame was on. I was going to ask Drive. you that was. Yeah. yeah. When Mark Kwame was on from Drive, he said one of the biggest things that Drive looks for when they're investing in companies is someone that's scratching their own itch. And when you were working on the demand forecasting stuff, it sounds like, hey, you're scratching somebody else's itch. But when you came back to doing what you were passionate about, you were scratching your own itch was we, hey, we need a way to get these models, make it really easy for other developers to build these models because it was hard for us. So, I mean, it yep. makes sense that it would be something that would be more passionate and maybe drive you in a new direction. Oh, yeah. It was just like, like I said, flipping a light switch. Mm -hmm. It was just everything changed. I think I went at the office and, and like fired the salespeople. And I'm like, you know, we're going all in on this developer tool, business to developer, and hired uh, one of the, I think he was the very first evangelist for SendGrid, a guy named Tim Falls. And we just, pivoted the entire company and went all in on let's let's do the thing that we're really passionate about right and just the morale of everybody in the office was just so much better now to be fair we just raised some money so like that probably you know it influenced how everybody was feeling at the time but everybody was really energetic and um it was just easier for me as a ceo also to recruit talent especially engineers because I think they understood like, oh, yeah, they're really passionate about trying to solve this problem. And I'm still really passionate about this problem. So, you know, I, I will say at, at Data Robot, this is something that I continue to try and bring to market because I just think there's this tremendous opportunity to encourage developers and developers are the people who create all this amazing software what they can do with machine learning is like probably near limitless, mm -hmm. right? And especially now when we get into AI and there is a distinction between AI and machine learning, but like, man, I'm just so optimistic about what somebody might be able to build that I'm not thinking about that could potentially change the world, right? Like that's so motivating to me every day uh, to get up and like try to, try to, do that right like mm -hmm. who knows who who might sign up and start using uh data robot to try and you know make something like who knows they could solve cancer for all i know right mm -hmm. like the point is you don't know right um but they're the people who will do it so as, as long as whatever they creates on our side i'm good with it <laughs> <laughs> well right i mean look uh yeah are you an optimist just, or a pessimist when it comes? Because there's kind of two sides to this coin, right? When it comes to <laughs> AI and machine learning, there's people who think, yeah, it's definitely like, we're worrying too much about this. It's going to be good. Or there's the people who are like, there's like the doomsayers who are like, we should never, ever even open this box, right? It's yep. going to be the Who are we world. talking with about Target? That was, uh, was that you guys that they were sending out the, your pregnant letters that they were getting before they even knew that they were pregnant? Because they were using, you know, was that on this podcast that we were talking about that? Uh, it might be a different podcast. Tim does other podcasts. So maybe we, uh, that, I have heard about that. So Target, Target was using, I don't know if this was you guys, maybe it was, maybe we shouldn't talk about this, but they were using purchase patterns and they were determining when people were pregnant. Because if you get somebody to start buying their stuff in the beginning of the pregnancy, they're going to continue. So you're basically locking a customer for nine months. So basically they were watching to see who bought pregnancy tests. They, no, 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 no. Like well before these people even knew they were pregnant their pattern. So what they would say is like, okay, this person bought these things. 
And then they became pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. So then they were getting people who they were sending ads to and they were like, why would you send my daughter this? And then they find out later that the daughter was pregnant or whatever. And so they had to stop it. And it was, they were using learning like that too. And it was like one of those use cases where it it, it did the job so well (laughs) that they were informing people of their pregnancies that had no idea because the purchase patterns, right? So say you buy like a 12 pack of Coke and then like Mm -hmm. Doritos and then you're pregnant and that all happens with pregnant people. Then they were like, oh, she bought Doritos. Here's your, here's your pregnancy packet or whatever. Yeah. When you mentioned target and machine learning, was that you guys that did that? No, but I, I've <laughs> seen their analytic command center and uh, their social media command center and it's, it's impressive. So yeah, they're, they're headquartered out there. I have a friend that works at their corporate in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, to, to answer the question about is this good or bad, I think it depends on who's ultimately at the helm. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people right now would say Facebook is not great for society. I think I was reading something where most of Facebook's employees, or maybe it was like early employees, but it was something about how a lot of the people now view this as not a benefit to society. Mm-hmm. And the AI there, and I don't know if people realize this, but I can give a, a real quick overview of how you know they're using it, is the other day I, I was on there and somebody had this video of a blind kid uh, skateboarding. Right. And, and like I this is the first time I've ever really I think I hearted the video. Right. And guess what? Within 30 seconds, my Facebook page was filled with skateboard ads. Right. right? Like just like that. And, and they're trying to influence behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. At the end of the day, that's what they're trying to do. And when you get to something like the election, that's where now you can basically change how people view the world essentially like that's that's scary to me on the flip side i I think i am more of an optimist though when it when it comes down to it i think that if we aren't afraid of what is coming then we can kind of properly build safety around it right i think the worst thing to do is put your head in the sand and ignore it and i think that's everything from policy creation and to down to the corporate level, right? Like you, you, you kind of need to hold corporations accountable and responsible to some degree. And again, I think that part of it is consumers can do it with their wallet. Although I'm, you know, I think that's like kind of a cop out. Um, and then I think part of it is, is Washington needs to put in some legislation around how data is used, but I don't like look the the fundamental thing though to remember is AI is not capable of doing anything without learning mm-hmm. and it cannot learn without data. So it really goes back to the human level of people should have more control over their privacy and f- like ultimately their data. Right. right. And I just don't think we're there yet. I don't think people really grasp everything that these companies are collecting on you. So mm-hmm. That was like a very long-winded answer, but it's a very, very complicated uh, area. And, you know, I look, like the other problem is job displacement. And I think the thing that people talk about today is is self-driving trucks, right? Like, is that going to displace all the truck drivers? And the answer is probably, like, I'll be honest, probably. I, I, I would be surprised if that doesn't happen in the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? Like what happens when you teach AI systems to be doctors? And not for nothing, I think AI would be a better doctor than most doctors. And that's not a dig at doctors. Mm-hmm. That's more of a dig at the medical industry as a whole. But think about it. Like if, if you have an AI system 
it will only care about you. It'll look at all your records. It'll look at all the medications you're taking. It'll look at what might best interact with, you know, the vitamins and the medication you're taking. And it would really understand you. And doctors, like I've seen it. You go in there, they pull out the chart. They look at the chart as you're sitting there. And how many times has somebody been asked by a doctor, so what brings you in today? Mm -hmm. It's like, you don't know why I'm here. I, I mean... You know, that, right. that's always just kind of struck me as odd. Like, why are you asking me that? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think you can easily lobby or, you know, argue for each side. There's That's like a debate that I don't know if there's necessarily. You can easily make each one sound evil and each one sound really appealing. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. You know, it really couldn't be cooler to have a sponsor and a partner like One Columbus. They are directly in alignment with everything we stand for and everything we're looking to promote here at Conquering Columbus. I mean, they just want to bring the most competitive companies to the area and make everything about the city and the region just one of the greatest places to live in the United States and in the world for that matter. Yeah, they're like the ultimate Columbus hype man. They're trying to bring new businesses here, show them what our strengths are, but also address some of the weaknesses and say, like, this is how we could get better. So for us, we're excited to help promote their goal and help tell the story with them on board. Absolutely. And if you guys want to learn more about One Columbus, check them out at columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. I've heard arguments about, and I don't know how, how it's even feasible or, or realistic it is, but the monetization of your own data and the ability to give people control and be able to, because I mean, essentially, you know, what, what you look at the business models of Facebook and Twitter and the people who've created the most massive amounts of wealth in the last five to 10 years, they've found a way to capitalize on the fact that you cannot monetize your own data. And essentially they're, they're taking money that would go to the individuals, mm -hmm. could have a way to do it. And they're leveraging at scale to do things like get you next day delivery with Amazon and figure out what to put in your Twitter feed and how to market to you on Facebook, all those different things. But I'm curious to go back to the Nexosa side. So you, you talked about, you know, you guys, the morale went up, you raised some money, you got rather excited. What do we look like from a team standpoint? And then time frame? have we been running the business for six months at this point, eight months at this point? I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around those stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. At this point, we had been running the business for about 18 months. Mm -hmm. So it took a while to get to that point, right? And thank God we did. <laughs> Otherwise, part of me thinks that we would still be running Nexosis as a, you know, marketing impact tool for Wendy's <laughs> franchise owners. <laughs> so, you're, yeah, so you're at 18 um, months, how many people? I think back then we had about 13 people. And you pivot and... How do things progress from there? Do you immediately start to, do you, you immediately have a viable product? Kind of. So the good thing was we already had a lot of the infrastructure in place. And that's like the key when you're making a business to developer offering is you're trying to make something really, really hard that maybe has a very high cost associated with the infrastructure and setting up servers and, you know, all this stuff before you even get to like a quote unquote, hello world moment. But we already had all the the piping and the plumbing, as we would like to say. So we basically just pivoted. We said we're going to release everything as an API, which is how developers commonly interact with this. You know, Twilio, I think, is probably the most famous and popular API. And for those not familiar with Twilio, it's a communication API. So if you ever get a text message, you know, from a company, more likely than not, Twilio is what powered that application to send you a text message. So machine learning, lots of infrastructure is typically required. And, 
you know, there's lots of different models and algorithms that you would potentially use. So we already had all that, right? We just put kind of a new face on it and we released that initially and it was just pure API play. And then we started iterating after we had the first version out there, but it probably took us about six months um, to really kind of reposition the company, redo our website and, and really go after the developer market. And when you guys release that that new iteration, are you immediately getting feedback from the marketplace? Yeah, it, it was pretty immediate. Uh, we also got a lot of feedback in Techstars that people wanted this. So it wasn't just shooting in the dark, right? We, we had a lot of business justifications for why we did it. And yeah, we, we started getting people to sign up and they were... Like the thing I love about developers is they'll always tell you how they feel, or at least you can find some of them to tell you what they really think. And some of the early feedback we got was it'd be really nice if you guys would create a dashboard to sit on top of the API so that I could upload data sets and manage my data sets inside of this, you know, graphical interface instead of all being, you know, command line driven. And that made sense. And we had always wanted to do that, but it was just good to hear the feedback from that community of, hey, here's what we want. Here's what we need. So guess what? <laughs> I think three months after that, we released the dashboard. Mm-hmm. And the dashboard, that was just like when everything kind of went went uh, gangbuster, so to speak. We looked at our cohort analysis and kind of retention rates. And even our oldest cohorts are coming back and engaging the platform once we released that version of the platform. And how do things progress from there? And maybe talk us through maybe getting to today. Yeah, so things are progressing, but you also have to keep in mind that at this point, I think we're like two years old as mm-hmm. a company. So there's there's some history, right? And I don't know if that was super awesome from a venture capitalist point of view of like, wait, you guys started here and then you like pivoted here and you're like, you've already raised all this money and your cap table is kind of a mess because of these early, pretty crappy investors. And VCs will get over all that, right? But it didn't help. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the truth of the matter. It didn't help. So you're already in like this negative position. And we were raising our Series A. And, you know, I had done the Techstars program. And during the Techstars program, I had reached out to Data Robot because Data Robot also did Techstars, although they did it a few years earlier than us. And I had talked to Jeremy, who's the CEO of, of Data Robot. I just shot him a message. I'm like, hey, would you be interested in, in exploring some business opportunities together, like Nexosis and Data Robot? And again, when I talked to him, Nexosis was really focused on time series demand forecasting. And I didn't think Data Robot had those capabilities. So I'm like, hey, this could be actually kind of a meaningful partnership for both parties. But those conversations progressed and then they ended up giving us an offer to acquire the company. And like, there's just so many decisions that, that factored into it that we decided that probably the best path to realize our vision was to kind of join forces with Data Robot, And that's what we did. And, you know, personally, a large part for me was a belief that, hey, Data Robot, I think at the time it raised, I can't remember, it might have been a hundred million dollars, but they were they were they were one of the AI companies that was kind of leading from that perspective of how much money they had raised. 
So I'm like, oh man, this is probably a really good opportunity to really build this developer offering because Data Robot did not have a developer offering and they really wanted one. And um, you know, that's that's basically the story of how the acquisition ended up happening. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. As we're approaching kind of the end of time here, I'm interested to hear, you know, you sit back and you, and you look at the whole story unfold. What sticks out to you? Would you, would you change anything? Um, obviously, oh, I guess that's probably a bad question because you talked a little bit in the beginning about how you have adjusted a little bit of those those initial years and I'm assuming you would have pivoted sooner and followed your passion a little bit sooner. But is there anything else that sticks out to you throughout the story that we haven't covered that you felt passionate about and think would be valuable to our listenership? I think today with all the tools available, there are so many online resources just to really take your time before you bring on bad investors like that that probably be my biggest advice is you hear it all the time that when you take on money you're, you're kind of entering into a marriage the difference is you can get divorced from a marriage it, it's a lot harder to get somebody that's put money into your company off your cap table or off your board so mm-hmm. you know really take your time and make sure that you jive with these people because you're you're entering into something that is going to last a long time and there's not a real easy way to separate that relationship. That makes a lot of sense, Ryan. No, they- to answer your other question, look, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like change anything. I had to go through all this to learn. And now if I ever do something else, like it'll be way, way better, right? Because of all these experiences. So I don't know. I, I never live life as like, oh man, I really regret that. Like, I don't know. That always seemed kind of silly to me. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe you would have just run into it again at a different time, right? If I'd never learned it then, I probably would have learned it eventually. So exactly. Could have joined exactly. anonymous with your hacking skills. Right. It's true. Could have been part of anonymous. <laughs> Who's to say that I didn't. Right. That's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> Should I better turn my VPN on my phone? I did. What's uh, funny. What's funny. Well, that's exactly that's what exact, someone yeah. who was in anonymous would say. Likely story. Uh huh. Um, but from a sixth grader hacking FBI agents to now where we're at today, part of anonymous, um, Seems like you've had a great journey, Brian. Obviously, we're all joking here, but I think good place to pivot towards our last question of the show. It's centered on the theme here on Conquering Columbus, Ryan, and that is live uncomfortably. And uh, without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase for a podcast about entrepreneurs and business owners and leaders in Columbus, what do you think of when you hear it? How's it apply to your life and career? Well, I mean, look, as I was saying, when I went to college, I went into a major that I didn't really know much about. And I did that because by design, I was uncomfortable with it. Right. Like I wanted to push myself to learn, you know, to be more comfortable speaking in front of others. And and like, I just forced myself to do that. And earlier in the program I was talking about how Jason and I would go to these security conferences and give, you know, presentations and talks in front of these big audiences. Like the first time I did that, that was super uncomfortable. But I did it anyway because I knew it was going to add to me as a person, right? Like it's making me better because I don't like and I am uncomfortable doing this. I I think like that's how you grow as a human. You've got to put yourself into these situations where you're uncomfortable and, you know, reflect and learn and grow from there. So, Well, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your story and the story of Nexosis. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And uh, Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. That was Ryan CV of uh, Nexosis and Data Robot. If you enjoyed that episode, leave a like, hit that subscribe button on whatever app you're listening on, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.